what an incredible um, blessing you are to us. Um, this morning we are going to, we're off series, we're not in Matthew, um, we are going to be pitching in into 1 Samuel chapter 1, so if you've got your Bibles, uh, have a look there, and we're going to be looking at the story of Hannah and God. We're going to be uh, unpacking that, we're going to be looking at lessons we can learn from Hannah, and we're going to be looking at uh, things we can learn about God, which will be an anchor for our lives. Um, For any of us that are here today, um, our perspective of God and our view of God is one of the most defining things when we come to living our lives. Depending on your view of him will affect how you face the circumstances that are in front of you. So I want to take the opportunity to... Um, highlight just a few things that are clearly there in 1 Samuel chapter 1 um, that tell us something about God because I believe they, will, they are an anchor to our own lives, an anchor to our own souls. Now I have the wonderful privilege this morning of not doing the preach on my own um, but sharing it with our Wales, who will be coming and doing the first half, and then I will be doing the second half. Now, if you don't know how she came down with John and the family um, in September last year, they came down to um, take a lead with the St. Leonard's venue that we are uh, preparing for, gearing up for, looking to plant um, in the coming season. Um, John and Al are also taking the lead in Food Bank and have done a tremendous job um, picking up from a very committed uh, volunteer team that had been leading it for the last five years. And uh, as I've been sat down and we've been chatting, me and Al, together this week um, about what she's going to share and what I'm going to share, I must admit I'm really excited and full of faith for what God is going to speak to you through us. So are you excited? Good, that's, that's slightly better. We're, we're definitely looking for that. Now, I've been given the um, unenviable task of actually reading the passage. And as we start reading the passage, you'll realise why it's not a task that I'm particularly um, keen on. No sniggering when I get to the names. If I can't read them, and I pause, but let's have a look at it and then we will um, work our way through. So I will, I will read and then we'll see where we go from there. There was a certain man of Ramathin, Zophim, (laughs) that's six words in Ros, (laughs) and you're laughing at me already, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, the son of, oh, an an Ephraimite. (laughs) He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Pen- <laughs> Pen- Penina. The other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shelah, where, he had, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. 
Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shelah, Hannah rose. Now Eli was the priest, was sitting um, on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation then Eli answered go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him and she said let your servant find favor in your eyes then the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord then they went back to the house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said I have asked for him from the Lord. And then if we go down to verse 24 and when she had weaned him she took him um, up with her along with a three-year-old bull and an ephra flower and a skin of wine and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shelah and the, ch- and the, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull And they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition um, that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Father, I pray as we look at this passage Would you give us such grace to do it in both a powerful and a compassionate way? Lord, I ask you, Lord, that there would be great power in gentleness and that you would minister to every single man and woman here today. Whatever our circumstances, whatever we've been through, we would know very much the ministry of your spirit and the ministry of your word, bringing strength and grace to our lives. We ask for that. I pray particularly for a special blessing on Alice. She comes and speaks. We ask for that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's give Al a really warm welcome. Morning. Um, For many of us, Hannah is a very familiar character in the Bible. We've read her story before, and because we know the outcome, we can sometimes skim read it, not hearing the heartbreak of Hannah's situation. Today, we're going to take a bit of a closer look. But before we do that, it's really helpful to take a step back, actually, and look at what else is happening around this time with the people of God. This account with Hannah is recorded during the era of Judges. God is continuing to lead his people. He's taken them from captivity to kingdom. They were led out under Moses and led in to the promised land of Joshua. They are now at this point living in, a, in tribes and they are vulnerable. They're vulnerable from attack from the Philistines, their enemy, and they're also vulnerable 
to corruption from within. They are not yet established as a nation with a king. But God is going to act miraculously and decisively in leading them into an established nation with an anointed king. God is continuing to work out his purposes and redemption plan in and through Israel, always pointing to the hope that is to come, always pointing to the light of the world. As God's plans are being worked out, the lens of scripture narrows in and focuses on one household, one family, one woman, Hannah. And what we see here in Hannah's life tells us so much about God, his character and his plan. So Hannah, she is married and childless. Probably her husband then marries a second wife because of Hannah's barrenness. And Peniah, the second wife, continues to irritate and goad Hannah, reminding her about her childless state. What a heart-rending, painful situation Hannah is in. You can't help but be moved by this. This is real. This is Hannah's story. This is Hannah's book in the library Paul talked about last week. Year after year, Peniah conceives and has another child, conceives and has another child, all within Hannah's home. There is no escape from this pain. It is a raw wound of longing and disappointment. This is ugly humanity on display. This is cruelty and unkindness towards Hannah. Possibly... Both these women are unhappy, actually. Scripture makes it really clear that Elkanah loves Hannah. His favour is towards Hannah. And maybe it's jealousy that is provoking Peniah and causing her to continue to goad Hannah. Perhaps both women are acutely aware of what the other has and it is robbing both of them of joy. We don't actually get to find out very much about Peniah and and what happens with her, but we do get to focus in on Hannah. Her acute sadness is visibly affecting her. She isn't joining in with a feast, a key time of family worship. She is so sad and troubled. And then Elkanah asks her this. Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I have several thoughts about that question. Um, I think it's born out of love. He loves her. And questions can be so helpful about our hearts. When people who love us ask us questions about the condition of our heart, that can be so, so helpful. It does say the wounds of a friend are faithful. But actually, Elkanah's situation is different. He has children. So although they are married, although they are united, they are not united in this grief. Elkanah cannot partake in her grief. She is alone in this. And I think that's true, actually, isn't it? When we go through really difficult times of sadness or grief, and some of you today have known sadness or no sadness now. In fact, for some of you today, it's a really tough day. When we're hurting, actually, no one else really knows our hearts. 
In fact, sometimes people say things and it's so unhelpful. So not only do you have grief and heartache, but you kind of have the barbs that people give you as well that you end up needing to unhook. We are vulnerable when we are like this. It's a really rare thing to speak with someone and you think, they've got it, they've heard my heart, I, I have been heard. So this is Hannah alone in her pain. I think it's just worth noting that she's not charged of any wrongdoing. She doesn't seem to charge God. There's no record of her complaining that her husband took a second wife. No record of her complaining about Paniah. Um, it's not there. But it's not just our outward appearance, is it? Man looks at the outside. God looks at our hearts. And despite the clumsiness of Elkanah's question, he is concerned about her heart. Reading some of the commentaries, I was quite surprised, actually. The word sad Elkanah uses when he says, why is your heart sad? That word appears in Deuteronomy as well. And it actually kind of talks more about discontent and grudging and maybe a bit resentful. It's not a surprise. Hannah's not perfect. This is a real woman enduring daily agony. When we have long-waited for desires that don't come to us, when we're living with an ongoing, be it sickness, be it unsaved partner, be it wanting a partner, be it having no children, when we live with something year after year after year, our hearts become vulnerable. Hannah's heart is vulnerable. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. This is possibly where Hannah is at, with a sick heart. What does a sick heart look like? Discontent can lead to resentment, which can lead to bitterness. Bitterness is it's not a good place to be. When we are bitter, it makes it so hard for us to hear God. It makes it so hard for us to see the goodness of God, actually. So Hannah's deeply troubled, and we don't know how long it's taken her to get to this point. But with that question, it's a provocation, and she has a choice. Simply put, Hannah can push into God or not. And we, we all have that choice. We can push into God or not. It doesn't really matter what our starting point is. If we have, even if today, actually, you think I've spent years feeling really resentful and disappointed. Disappointment is a hard emotion to handle. It's a hard emotion. It's okay if that's how you're feeling because you have the choice to turn to God. Hannah makes it clear that she believes God is able. She refers to God as the Lord of hosts. This is the first time this phrase is used and it points to the almighty authority of Yahweh, the Lord of armies, the one who has all the power and all the resources at his disposal. Hannah knows that God is able, that this is not a difficult prayer for him. I just want to stop there because I find that staggering. 
God is immense in power, scarily so. He is holy, mighty, the Lord of all, sovereign, magnificent, yet he is not far off. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I mentioned earlier that Hannah is alone in her situation, that no one else exactly knows her heart, but God knows. He knows. He sees us. He hears us. We do not serve a blind or deaf God. He knows our heart. He understands us. He sees every tear. He hears every whispered cry of the heart, as well as every rant and anguished prayer. It says in Psalms, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Let's take a moment to drink that in. The Lord of hosts, terrible as an army with banners collects our tears. Hannah is pouring out her heart to God. Her heart is working, not her voice. We don't know how long she was there for, and all that is recorded is one sentence. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I am staggered by this prayer. Maybe it's a bargaining chip. You do hear of people saying, if you get me out of this, God, I'll fill the gaps. Except when the child arrives, she weans him and she gives him to God. She fulfills her vow. This is no small act. This is no rashly made and quickly forgotten promise. This, I believe, is heartfelt worship. And the astonishing thing is Hannah makes this vow to give her son back before her prayers are answered, before she has conceived. This long-awaited child that she's yearned for, she is now prepared to give to God. It, I find it uncomfortable. Over the years when I've read it, I've tried to reason it out and think, well, couldn't it have been done a bit differently? Couldn't you have just lent him for a month every year or something? Does it have to be this way? But I had missed it. I hadn't noticed. After Hannah's prayer, she's different. Her countenance is different. She is strengthened and she has faith. In essence, she has been changed before her situation is changed. I would suggest it's because she has seen something of God that has caused this response to him in faith. I mentioned earlier the backdrop of what is happening with Israel. God's working his purposes out and Samuel, God, Hannah's son, is significant. He plays a key part I think that in prayer, Hannah encounters God. She sees afresh something of the bigger purposes of God, and she wants in. There's a faith response. When we push into God in difficult times, he meets us, and we find we can stand. Do you know, sometimes our situation, loads of you know this, I know that, our situations deteriorate, actually. But sometimes, but it's big we're standing and it actually it's not about our ability to endure 
It's not about our ability to endure. It's about his ability to strengthen us. How long can God hold us for? Forever. His arm doesn't tire. His goodness, his kindness, his mercy, they don't expire. They are new every morning. He is able to give us grace to stand, grace to endure. His grace never, ever runs out. How do we know that Hannah has seen something of God's goodness? Her song. Her song is so beautiful. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. She's experienced his joy and strength. She's seen his holiness, his steadfastness, his unchanging character. She has seen that nothing and no one compares to knowing God and being known by God. She sees that God is mighty to act, that he's able to reverse circumstances. She's seen his sovereignty and his mercy and his compassion. But this song, Hannah's song, is the foretaste of another song, sung much later on by another woman with another miraculous birth. And this child, he will change everything. Not just for one nation, but for all nations. Not just for one woman, but for all people. Jesus, he will change everything. He will bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, open the prison of those who are bound, comfort all who mourn, that we may be called oaks of righteousness. This is our hope, and this is what we see from Hannah. Wow. I knew I should have gone first. <laughs> we, we, we see um, in Hannah a set of circumstances. We see um, Hannah's response. Al's already touched on just some of the things that I want to reference, but I hope in some ways as I go over them, bring slightly different perspective. It, it will bring um, greater colour. Uh, to you as we look at it because what what do we learn about God from this story I think the first thing that I I notice and um, Al has referenced it already is that we serve a God who is in control God is sovereign he is the all-powerful creator We see it in this story, and if I'm honest, it doesn't make me feel overly comfortable, but it it does. It says that Hannah's womb was closed because that's what God had decided would be the case. Verse 5. In verse 19, it says that Samuel is conceived because God had opened Hannah's womb. In chapter 2, this song of praise that Hannah lets echo out It says this about the God that we worship, the God that she worships, that he kills and brings life. That he makes poor and he makes rich. That he guards and he cuts off. He judges to the ends of the earth. And this sort of leaves me with the uncomfortable reality that the bad and difficult things that come into my life, God is sovereign over them, but sometimes he doesn't change them. 
that the sin and brokenness I can see in my own life or in the lives of family or friends and these things crash in, I know God can change them. He's sovereign. He's, he's in charge of it all. But sometimes he gives me the grace to endure. He doesn't bring change to the circumstances that we are facing. And actually, if you read more of 1 Samuel, you'll find it very provoking and challenging because there's a whole load of stuff in there that stretches your perspective of God out. And you, if, if you're anything like me, you'd like to put God in a box. You find you can't quite do that because you read 1 Samuel and there's a bit hanging out over there and there's a bit over here and you think, oh, oh, I... God's bigger than I am. I can't fully understand his purposes or his plans. I would like to make it nice and neat and controlled. And sometimes you can hear little things said like, well, because God is a loving God, he would never allow that to happen to you. But, but actually, if you read the Bible as a whole, you find that sometimes he does allow those things to happen to you. And there's that uncomfortable reality that I don't always understand, but I know... God is in control of my life. That God is sat on the throne, that he is ruling and he is reigning. And although he never planned for there to be sin, sickness and death in the world, there is because of human rebellion, but he sits enthroned above them as well. And in the midst of God's sovereignty and power and ability to guide and direct and ordain, Somehow or other, and I don't even get this, but again we've seen with some of Hannah's account, he's given us free will. He's given us that, that, that ability to choose and make decisions and given us the responsibility to live with the actions we make. But God is still sat on the throne, ruling and reigning. And you might say, well, how on earth does knowing these things about God help Hannah? How, how, how does it help me in the circumstances that I am in? Well, there is a mammoth, there is a gigantic promise in Romans 8 verse 28 that secures everything down for anyone here who is a Christian, anyone here who is a follower of Jesus. And this is what it says. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. He has appointed them to be saved in keeping with his purpose. And the God I worship is sat on the throne. The God I worship is in charge of all things, ordaining all things, causing things to happen. And in his great grace, wisdom and power is able to make all circumstances beneficial for his purpose and for his glory. This is what it means. I can hide in this promise when I am not certain what's going on, when I don't understand. I don't understand why in God's purposes Hannah was barren year after year after year. But I can hide in the promises knowing that my God is on the throne and he has the ability, he has the desire, he has the wisdom and the power to make all things beneficial for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And this brings such hope and security. It's like I can hide myself in this promise and cling on to it in the tough times, knowing it is more stable than being hidden in Mount Everest itself.
even the events we don't see coming, they don't sneak up on him. Not just the nice things, but the horrible things as well. God is sovereign. He is the king. He cares for us. He has both the desire and the ability to weave these things together, to make them beneficial for us and to bring glory to his name. This is somewhere we can hide. John Piper says this, the confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good in all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. Church, let me encourage you. Don't box God down to something small and reasonable and understandable, but allow your thoughts of God to be shaped by what it says in the Bible. His sovereignty, his ability over all things. Next thing I just noticed about God, and Al definitely has already touched on this, so I'll just, just give a few little things. You know, God hears the brokenhearted. Although he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, he doesn't just listen to presidents and kings and billionaires and those with great authority or great business leaders or wonderful intellects. God listens to Hannah. Someone who is broken hearted at the end of their tether, who has been forgotten by many. God listens to her. He says she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And this, this is, these are some words that we can really hide within verse 19. And the Lord remembered her. Wow. The sovereign one remembered Hannah. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Do you know? He remembers you. He remembers you. And what I've noticed, I think from experience and the Bible, is God is often much more interested in the condition of my heart than he is in the success I see. And God is, I think, as my loving father quite happy to interrupt my success in order to cause my heart to be more knit to his and to bring me to a place where I'm more dependent on him. He says in the New Testament that he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And as Al said there, you know, when we face difficult circumstances, it can either cause us to build walls up against God or causes us to take hard rocks out of our hearts and softens us in order that we can be more malleable in our loving Father's hands. God cares for the broken-hearted. He can use the difficult circumstances in our lives in order to change and transform us and to make us more and more and more and more like his son Jesus Christ. That's what he does in his wisdom and his love. There is great capital with God in broken-hearted worship and prayer. You know, in heaven, we won't be broken-hearted and we're going to worship. But here on earth, 
There's times when you'll come into this auditorium. There'll be times when you're at home on your knees and you're crying out in worship to him, although your heart is broken. He sees that. He loves that. He loves you. He doesn't love the pain, but he loves you and your overflow of worship to him. God is sovereign. He's in control. God hears the brokenhearted. And just the last thing I wanted to bring in here. You know, God works in generations. He does work in minutes. He does work in hours. He works in days, weeks, months and years. But he definitely works in generations. I wonder how much of a seedbed of faith, humility, passion Hannah laid that Samuel could grow in. I wonder how much of the groundwork Hannah did in order that Samuel would become all that he would become and do everything that God had called him for. We see that in 1 Samuel. The Old Testament actually is brilliant for it. You see the power of generations. One generation to the next generation to the next generation. You see it with Hannah um, and Samuel. You see it with Eli and his sons in a less positive way. Decisions that I make will echo through the coming decades. Decisions I make as a father right now will affect my boys. And they will probably affect how they raise their children, if they have them, or how they live life. And that could affect how that happens for that generation. Both for blessing and favour and laying this seedbed where faith grows, but, but also the bad bits too. And so often when we're making decisions, we make decisions based on silly things like, well, if it makes me happy, I'm going to do it. That's such short-term thinking. That's not how. And anyway, it, doesn't, it won't probably really make you happy. It might give you a little bit of elation for a short time, but in the end, you'll reap the consequences if it's ungodly. What I do, decisions we make. And it's not just about whether you've got children or not. Let me, as I close, just finish with a story that I, only, I felt God bring to my mind um, as I was preparing this. And I want this to be an encouragement for everyone um, here. When I was about 10 years old, 9, 10 years old, um, I was growing up and I visited North Wales with my grandparents to see some friends of theirs. Bob and Francis. Bob was a Methodist minister and he'd become a Christian as a result of the Welsh revival or in the aftermath of the Welsh revival. Um, When we went to visit him, he was probably in his 80s and I only met him personally once or twice. But he had a close link um, with my mum's side of the family. Um, My mum says that she didn't realise it because she wasn't a Christian at times, so didn't understand these things. But he was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and he spoke in tongues. He, he was at my mum and dad's wedding and he prayed for them. Not that they had any idea really what was going on. Weren't Christians at that point in time. And he prayed for our family for many, many years. 
The great sadness in Bob and Francis' life, though, was they never had any children of their own. They, they desperately wanted children, but, but she wasn't able to conceive. They've died now, gone to glory, gone to be with Jesus. And you could maybe look at their little white cottage on the hillside in North Wales and it's lived in by people that aren't their family anymore. And they don't have any children or grandchildren biologically to look at and say, we are here because they were. And you could possibly look and say, um, is there anything left of who they are or what they did? And you turn back the, the curtain of heaven and you have a look inside and you say, God, bet you there's something left of who they were and what they did. Because I don't think, well, I don't know. Myself and my mum were talking about it. We wonder if we'd come to know Christ if it wasn't for their faithful witness and their heartfelt prayers over the decades. And I wonder how many others, when you turn back the the curtain of heaven a little bit further and you realise the fruitfulness of this dear, dear couple who were full of the Holy Spirit and they prayed in tongues and they believed the promises of God and they invested in future generations, although they didn't have a biological generation themselves to invest into, that didn't stop them having an inheritance being a blessing. For dozens and dozens of you here today, you don't have kids of your own, but you've got spiritual kids. Where you've invested, you've prayed, you've laboured, you've given yourself. And I think the story of heaven as you pull back the curtain will be, wow, look how fruitful you were. Look how much you achieved for him. Look at the inheritance. Look at the legacy going down from one generation to the next. That's the wonderful thing about God. He is sovereign. He is in control. He hears our prayers. He cares about us deeply and is interested, not necessarily always in the short-term success, but sowing into future generations and seeing the fruitfulness, seeing what will take place. Can we stand, please? Al, do you just want to join me back up here? That'd be great. We'd just love to pray for you briefly, um, then we're going to be heading off to Bex Hill, um, but, and then Paul will lead on from there. Do you just want to pray, Al? I'll just pray for a blessing on us as a congregation. Father, we thank you that we thank you that when we glimpse you and we see your perspective, we are undone, Lord, by your goodness and your faithfulness and your plans. Thank you that you save us. And thank you that you catch us up in something bigger than us. Thank you that you are the God who sees us. Thank you that you're the God who hears the cry of the brokenhearted. Thank you that you meet us, you strengthen us, you equip us. Thank you you give us faith. Thank you you're tender in your mercy. 
Thank you that you are good. Thank you that we are loved by you. Father, I pray today that people would be encouraged, really encouraged, deep down inside encouragement, faith to stand if they're in difficulties. And Father, I pray that we would just have our heads lifted as we see the abundant goodness of you, our Father. And as we realise we're part of an incredible tapestry streaming through history, story and story and story and story of your goodness and your faithfulness and your mercy and you working out plans in and through people's lives. We thank you that you are good. (laughs) You're so good and we love you. Amen. just want to give us a